If you got your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. Is that right? Yes, that's right. It's right. Exodus 33. We have come up on the tail end of the Israelites forming another God, the golden calf, worshiping it, and then the fallout from that. And so their idol worship has caused major problems, um, not the least of which has been God's anger against them. So we see his anger stirred up. We see Moses interceding on behalf of the people. We see Moses going to the people there in the end of chapter 32 and saying, who's on the Lord's side, come to me. And then we see judgment coming uh, from God's people to God's people. And then at the end of chapter 32, we see probably uh, we, we're going to get to or we see the, the worst part about this as they are at Sinai, it's time for them to go. And God is saying he will not go with them. He will not go with them. And so that's the, the worst thing that's come out of this. And so we kind of dove in a little bit to chapter 33 last week. We're going to step back and look at chapter 33 together, this consequences of the sin. Um, and so ultimately you see the end of 32. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf the one that Aaron made. And so uh, now we see that God is not going to go with his people. But when we get to 33, um, we see kind of a, uh, it's an interesting passage because at first it seems like everything's okay. At first when you read it, it says, the Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, in the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. Now, remember, we are working off of a story that is going on and being told to us as Moses is writing this, relaying to us what happened. And that story is true. Sometimes when we use the word story, um, it kind of thinks that you're telling a story or a little fib, but that's not what I mean here. This story is a true story and it's going all the way back. It flows from the beginning. So you got to go back to Genesis. In fact, that's exactly where the Lord takes this. There was a promise that was made in Genesis to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. Remember how we spoke about this when we were in Genesis. God spoke directly to Abraham. God spoke directly to Isaac. God spoke directly to Jacob. Now, after Jacob departs, then that message that God gave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is the same message, if you remember in Genesis, that message he gave them is now passed on to the next generation and generations after that. And so God spoke directly to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now after that, 
that message is passed on. And so God is showing himself again in the book of Exodus, some 400 years after Abraham, or more after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's showing himself again and making himself known. So now God is speaking again, and that's what we have seen. And so God has delivered his people, he has shown up, and he is letting them know who he is again. And in the midst of this, they've gone to Sinai. He's given them the law. He's told them how to behave, what to do, what to build. He's given them everything. God is going to dwell with his people. So if you go back to that principle that I said is the theme of Exodus, God is going to redeem his people so he can be with his people, you find a severing of that whole thing in this passage in chapter 33. But I find it interesting of what's being said here because 33, 1 through 6 really is going to give us, especially the first three verses, is going to give us what it seems like the Israelites wanted. Remember, I said whenever they went to the golden calf, he says, that I, I remind you that there's some people that look for a religion that makes no demands and only offers rewards to them. They look for a religion that makes no demands of them and only offers a reward. And that's kind of what we want, right? We want to get the good and not have to deal with anything else. We, we want to get, uh, as the old preacher used to call it, get fire insurance. You know what I'm trying to say? Get out of jail free card. We ought to get out of hell free card. You know, you want, you want to respond to it because when you come to the gospel, the response will be, well, I just know I don't want to go to hell, so I'm going to do this. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And oftentimes, that is not a satisfactory answer or reason to respond positively to the gospel itself. And, and, and I understand if that's a part of it. Surely none of us want to go to hell. But there's a different piece to this. The different piece is that God himself, and this is what we ended on last week, God himself is the gospel. He is the gift to us. Without the Lord in his presence, there is no heaven, right? And so what you find here is God actually offers the Israelites what they seemingly wanted with the golden calf. He says, I'll tell you what I'll do because God keeps his promises. He said, I'm going to send you on to the land I told you. And I don't, maybe y'all noticed it, but every time I get to do it, I just realize how often I've done this and how well, and this, I may be, this, this may not be the best way to put it, how well I'm able to say all of those names. Do y'all hear how well I go through them? Have y'all noticed that? I mean, and I, they just flow. Uh, I will drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. That's pretty good pretty. Thank you. Thank you. My point is, he's saying, I'm going to send you to the land that I told you about. And, and if you remember back in Genesis, he says, I'm not, he told Abraham, I'm not going to send you there yet for the sins of the Canaanites, which Canaanites is a larger way of all of these people, right? And so you have the Canaanites that are part of this, but then all of these are in the land of Canaan. And so he says the sins of the Canaanites is not ready yet. Like there's still sins to be done. So he's letting them pile up judgment and then he's going to say now it's time to kick them out. And so ultimately he's come along and he's saying, 
I'm going to send y'all there and I'm going to remove them like I told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I would. I'm going to keep my promises, but I'm not going with you. Do y'all see what he, how he says it? He says, I'm going to give you all of that, but I'm going to send an angel before you to do that. I am not going with you. Because if I go with you, you're going to keep doing stupid stuff. And when you do that, I have got to judge it. I cannot allow that to happen. I've got to bring judgment. And so ultimately, the Lord is saying, I'm going with you. I mean, you're going on. I'm going to take care of it, but I'm not going with you. Now, isn't that what it seems like the Israelites wanted? They wanted a religion that made no real demands of them, but they got the benefit. They're still going to get the land flowing with milk and honey. They're still going to have the promise fulfilled. They're still going to reach safely to uh, Canaan land. They're still going to get it all, but God's presence will not be there. And this is a critical point in the history of Israel. It's a critical point in the Old Testament itself. Because they're getting offered the promised land with no God there. I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to give you, I'm not going to go with you. And so ultimately what happens next is vitally important. They're getting offered this, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. You are a stiff-necked people. By the way, that stiff-necked people language is a language that's used several times throughout Scripture to speak of the, the, uh, not only the arrogance, but the pride of the people of God. Uh, Stephen uses it in Acts chapter 7. He calls them stiff-necked people. You, you won't believe it when it's right in front of you. And so you think you know what's best. And isn't that what a stiff-necked person is? I don't know if y'all know, I don't know if y'all use that old stiff-necked joker, you know, anymore. But that's what it is. It's the idea that you think you know what's best when what you think you know is obviously not best for you. So you, here, here's something here that's good for you. If you'll only do it, you'll find satisfaction in it. You know what I'm saying? If you'll only do this, then you will find happiness and joy. But you're looking at it going, saying, I'm not doing that. No way I'm going to do that. If you do it, you'll realize how great it is and how satisfying it is. No way am I, am I not doing that. It's one of my favorite things to put a some food in front of my kids that they've never eaten before. Y'all know what I mean? And what's their answer? I'm not eating that. No way I'm eating that. Now, my kids, Allison can tell you, one of my kids' favorite things to eat is Brussels sprouts. Believe it or not. And why is that? Because one day, Allison made Brussels sprouts in bacon grease and covered them with bacon bits. You know what I'm saying? And then had the audacity to drizzle some honey on them. And you don't talk about good. And you're sitting there looking at them going, if you will just try this, you will love it. You'll like it. I'm not eating Brussels sprouts. Who eats that? And then they try it and what happens? Man, that's good. That's good. In fact, Levi, we were gone this past weekend. Levi had to make himself supper. 
And so I send him some money. It's, it's a newfangled thing. You can send money over a phone. I don't know if y'all know anything about that. I sent him some money to get some supper, and instead of going to like a restaurant, he went to the grocery store and went home and made Brussels sprouts. <laughs> Kid you not, ain't it true, Al? Made Brussels sprouts. Why? Because he tried them one day. He wasn't stiff-necked. You see what I'm saying? In some sense, that's exactly what they're saying. You guys think you know what's best for you, but if you would only do this, you'll find all the joy and happiness you could ever imagine. You keep going and doing something over here that's not good for you, and this is right before your eyes. And that's exactly what the Lord is saying here. You, I'm ready to not, I've saved you out of Egypt, and I want to lead you straight there to the promised land. I want to provide everything for you, yet you turn to a golden cow. You do that. I tell you what, you go ahead and get the promised land. You go ahead and have it your way. I'll put you in the land flowing of milk and honey, but you're not going to have me. And the ultimate answer is this is when it comes down to. Is that good enough for any of us? If I were to tell you, and if I were to say to you, if I were to say to you that you can live your life how you want to live it, and when you die, you'll go to a land flowing with milk and honey, with golden streets and a crystal sea. Y'all know how this works, right? You'll have your mansion just over the hillside. Y'all heard, y'all know what I'm talking about. You'll have all that you imagine. You'll have it all there. You can have all of that. Live how you want to. You can have all of heaven and everything there, but God won't be there. My fear is that a lot of Christians or so-called Christians would say, okay. I'll take that. Because you think your reward is golden streets and a crystal sea. You think your reward is a mansion in eternity, right? You think that's what your reward is. The great reward, the, 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 the inheritance that is undefiled and unfading for us is not found in those things we think about when we think about heaven. The inheritance that is undefiled and unfading for us is the adoption as sons and daughters into the family of God where we receive his glory in his name forever with him. That's what is great, right? That's what we mean when we say the God is the gospel. He is it. He's not, a, he's not a ticket to get into heaven at the end of life. He's not like you go to a movie theater and you purchase the ticket and then you go in to watch the movie. He is the movie itself, right? He's not just the pass to get in. He is it. Getting his presence, knowing him, being with him in all eternity is what we long for and what we need. It is what satisfies us. It is what satisfies us. And the reason why the streets are gold and the, the sea is crystal is because God's presence is there. His purity, his serene peace is there. That's why it's that way. And so ultimately, this comes down to a position. God is not just saying, hey, y'all go ahead without me. He's saying, I'll give you what you want. I'll give you what you want. You can have the land flowing milk and honey. You just won't have me. Is that good enough for you? And it's a question I do believe that we need to answer as believers ourselves. 
we need to answer this. Thankfully, thankfully, the Israelites gave the right answer. The Lord says, you go ahead. I'll consume you if I go with you. You go ahead. And when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned. Getting Canaan land with flowing with milk and honey, getting all of that without God presence, present is a disaster. It's a disaster. The people heard this disastrous word and they mourned. And no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I shall go up among you, I will consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. They didn't dress up with the things of this world. They didn't dress up with the ornaments. They recognized in mourning that if they don't have God, they don't have anything. If they don't have him, what good is the the ornaments of this world. If they don't have him, what good are those simple pleasures? What good is making yourself up and, and, and making yourself look nice? What good is dressing up if you don't have God ultimately? He's our treasure. And so he says, this is what you're to do. In other words, I think in these first six verses, there's a clear need that the people have. A clear need that the people have that they cannot overlook. And that need is God himself. It's God himself. Now, again, we've talked about this before. Uh, I, I think it is important that we always keep in mind the difference between needs and wants, right? Y'all know the difference between needs and wants. You need something to eat. You want something good. Y'all know what I'm saying? And so ultimately, we, we have to tell the difference between needs and wants because I really think it comes down to helping us understand our, our desperation for God that we're going to see here. Because God is not just a want that we have. He's an absolute need. And so ultimately, that's what it's saying. Like they're, they're recognizing now, we may want this, this, and this, but we are desperate for God. We need him. We need him. And so while we see this absolute need, it's the same for us. We have an absolute need for God. Now we're going to see a special privilege of Moses, a special privilege of Moses where it says next. So they, from Mount Horeb onward, they're, they're, they're mourning, saying we got to have God. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Now, this tent is not the same tent that God told him to design, the tabernacle. The tabernacle tent will not be outside the camp. The tabernacle tent will be in the midst of the camp, in the middle of the camp. And in fact, when you get to numbers, they start describing how to set up the camp. The tent's in the middle. The Lord tells them exactly where each tribe should camp around the tent. And so they're all around the tent. And so ultimately, what you have here is something different. This is before the tabernacle is established Moses is going outside the camp, far off from the camp, 
and he called it the tent of meeting because there where he goes to this camp, he's going to meet with God. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak to Moses. So here we have Moses with this special privilege. He would go outside the camp. He had his tent there. He would enter into the tent and then the presence of God would come down. That's that pillar of cloud that would come down. We've talked about that before. The pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. It represents God's presence with his people. It's that same pillar that led them out of Egypt. It's the same one that went behind them and protected them from Pharaoh's army. It's the same pillar that the manna would fall out of and everything else would happen. It's that pillar of cloud that represents of God's presence so that the people of God, especially as we get into this wilderness march here, the people of God will never have to question the presence of God. All they have to do is open up their little tent, look out and say, oh, he's here, right? Because they see the pillar of cloud, they see the pillar of fire, God's presence. And if you remember, that pillar of cloud and fire would start moving and what would the people have to do? Go with it. God is leading them out, not just an, an angel, as he says before, but God himself is leading them out. And so here Moses enters into this tent with his special privilege. And in this tent, the, the pillar would come down and Moses would speak to God. And it says face to face. Now we know he's not looking at God's face because it says just in this chapter at the end, no one will see my face and live this is, it's a, it's a figure of speech to say God is speaking directly to Moses, directly to him, right? And so he's speaking directly to him in this tent. Moses goes out and he communes with God and he speaks with him and look at the response of the people. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship. Now notice the change. And recognize what's happened. These are the same people that when Moses was gone for 40 days and 40 nights said, let's throw some gold in the fire. And remember, Aaron did it for him and the fire did it. He, the fire spit out a calf and they, they worshiped that calf. They were looking for some representation for God. But because of that, God's judgment came on them. Remember, 3,000 men died because of that judgment and, and this plague laid over them because of that judgment. So in some sense, maybe they've learned their lesson. But what you have now is God shows up in this pillar of cloud. And so the people stand up. Why do they stand up? Out of respect for God's presence, they stand in his presence. And then when they see Moses in there in the cloud, they worship. Why? Because now they have this representation. God is here. He's with us. He's with us. And this is right. Remember, this isn't the first time Moses would see God and talk to God, right? He talked to God at the bush that was burning and not consumed. And what happened there? He told him, take off your sandals for the, the ground you're standing on. In my presence is holy ground. Or 
or he, 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 Moses would meet him at Mount Sinai. He met him with the elders that, that came up together and, and he saw the pillar that came down over Mount Sinai. Moses has seen, in some sense, the presence and glory of God already. He's already done this. And whenever he does, the idea of worship is right. You'll see worship in Scripture you can't find where worship is condoned of anybody other than God or anything. In fact, uh, many times, you see it in the New Testament, by the way. You'll see it in the book of Acts when they bow down and worship Paul. And what does Paul say? He rips his clothes. Don't worship me, my goodness. And, and it's the same way. Angels will show up and people will worship him. No, don't worship me. There's a sense in which any worship that takes place that's not toward God is condemned in Scripture. And whenever worship is given toward God, then it is right. It's allowed. And so here you see God's presence here and worship takes place. Moses has this precious glorious privilege that he gets to go into the tent, into the presence of God and speak to him, talk with him. And the people are out here, all they can do is stand on the outside and worship. It's right, but there's something here going on. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, verse 11, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. We get glimpses of Joshua's presence with Moses in his leadership. Joshua is Moses' intern. Y'all see, see how that works? He's his resident. He's training him up. He's with him. He's there. And so you see that presence of Joshua being there. And why do I say this is a privilege? Because what you have here is a picture of what we call, the old saints called communion with God, right? We think of communion as, as, as the bread and the, the, the fruit of the vine, the uh, grape juice, if you will. We think of the elements, we think of communion as the Lord's Supper. Communion in the traditional word has a sense of which where you partake with another. We are communing together, right? We are partaking of a meal together. We're, we're talking together in some deep fellowship way. And so ultimately what you see here is Moses is communing with God. He's, he's in his presence. They're speaking together. Face to face is the imagery. And so ultimately what you see is this privilege Moses has is peculiar to him. Nobody else can enter in here with the presence of God. Even when the presence leaves, Moses leaves, Joshua stays with the tent, but the, the, the pillar is not there, right? And so you have this peculiar, this, this peculiar privilege that Moses has. And so that's important for us because as we move next and see what happens next, we see that we have an assignment that we're to do that we can't complete without God in his presence. So Moses goes in and speaks, and Moses says to the Lord, verse 12, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Whenever David is describing this scene about Moses retelling the history of Israel in Psalm 103, he just simply says, and Moses 
knew the ways of God. It's this question. Moses says, show me your way. Show me your way. Show me your ways. I want to know what you think. I want to know what you want me to do. I want to know where you want me to go. Consider, too, Moses says, not just me, but consider, too, that this nation is your people. Understand this, this communication with the Lord. Moses is saying, look, if I found favor in your sight, then show me your ways. Let me know what it is you would have me do. Show me how to live in your sight. But not just me. Please show it for this whole nation. Consider that these are your people. Remember how it came out whenever the Lord sent Moses down. The Lord says to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt. There, Moses is reversing that, saying these are your people, God. So not only if I found favor, but what about you? And he said, the Lord, verse 14 and he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Now, seemingly, that's a good answer. Because seemingly, you say, well, that's what we're looking for. God just said, I'm not going to go because I will kill him. Y'all have heard that kind of stuff before, right? But again, there's a lot of parenting talk going on in this, in this conversation. God says, I'm not going to go because I'm going to kill him. And Moses says, if you, if you please, Moses goes in and meets with God face to face. And he says, if you please, please go with us. Show me your ways. If you found favor in my sight, show me your ways. And, and, and what about your nation? These are your people. Show us this. And the Lord says, okay, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Moses' answer is unique though, right? His response. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Well, didn't God just say the presence would go? Now, it's, it's, it's hard for us, and this is just, a, it doesn't take much study, but sometimes language and translation is hard for us. Why? Because, because you and you in the English language can be what? Singular and plural, right? And so ultimately, what we don't notice here, unless we kind of look into it a little bit, and because Moses' answer is weird. The Lord says, I'm going to go with you. Moses should say, yay, let's go, right? But he does it. He says, if you'll not go with us, then, then we can't go. So what's happening? Ultimately, it says this. The Lord says, my presence will go with you. That word is in the singular. He's saying to Moses, okay, Moses, I'll go with you. I'll go with you, Moses. That word is in the singular. I will give you singular rest. And he said to them, if your presence will, will not go with me, do not bring what? Us up out of here. Moses is interceding on behalf of the people. He's saying, the Lord's saying, okay, Moses, I'll go with you. And the Lord's, and Moses responds, Lord, if you don't go with us, right? If you don't go with all of us, then don't, don't take us out of here. Moses is interceding on behalf of the people. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Lord, do not abandon us. Do not leave us, Moses. 
is interceding on behalf, saying, we are your people. We're different than the other nations. And what makes us different, God, is you. So if you leave us, then we have no identity. We have no understanding. We have no help. We are lost and we are undone. There's no way for us to accomplish what you have called us to accomplish. In other words, in other words, there is an assignment we have to get to the promised land that we cannot fulfill unless you fulfill it for us. There's something we have to do that we can't do. Do y'all hear what I'm saying? There's something I've got to do that I can't do. That's what he's saying. I can't do what you're asking me to do unless you do it through me and in me and for me. That's what Moses is saying. In this whole conversation and back and forth, we see this several incredible things. First of all, we see the absolute desperation of God's people for his presence. God has called us to do something that we cannot do. He's calling us to follow him into heaven itself, into eternity, to the promised land, right? He's called us to do that. We cannot do that unless he takes us there. Not only can he, does he have to save us out of our sin, but he's also got to walk with us through this life, right? He's got to lead us, be in his presence with us through this life. He's the one who's got to get us safely home. Notice what Jesus would say later. And I'm trying to save to get to Jesus to the end. I like to bring Jesus up at the end. That's my favorite way of doing this. But notice what he's saying. You're asking us to do something we can't do without you. In Moses' voice, in this conversation, you see an absolute desperation for God. I can't go if you don't go. If you don't go, I can't do it. I'm done. We are dead here. It's over. Please don't leave us here. For your name, for your glory. As the psalmist says, revive us, O Lord, not for our sake, but for your name's sake, he says. Show the people of the world how powerful you are by delivering your obstinate, stiff-necked people to the place you told us you would be. Show the people of the world how glorious your name is by displaying your grace and your mercy through your people by getting them to the promised land. If you don't go with us, Lord, we are dead here and it's over. There is a clear desperation that Moses has. That Moses has and he lays out. That desperation, again, is seen or answered. Let me put it like this. The desperation that Moses has is the same desperation that we have. God has called us to follow him, right? That's the basis of discipleship. And there is not one of us in this room that has the power in and of ourselves to follow him. He must save us, redeem us, change us, and bring us, right? He's the one who brings us safely home. He's the one who leads us. He's the one who gives us the strength. He's the one ultimately, 
ultimately who will put his spirit within us. But not only that, he's the one who will send his son to get us. We're like the lost one in the middle of the forest and there's no path out. A forest that is deep and, and, and no guide. You get lost in it just by the sense of its massive nature. You can't see above the trees. I'm getting deep in this, but get what I'm saying. The only one that can save you is the one who comes in there and gets you out of it. And if they say to you, how are we going to get out? I, he, that one is the path himself, right? Let me show you the way back out. That's what Jesus is. The only one who went to heaven and returned. Y'all know Jesus says that, don't you? The only one that's been to heaven and come back, right? The only one that's gone there and returned for us is the only one who can take us safely home. He is the path. He is the way. He is the truth. And so if we're going to get to where we need to go, it's because he's come, rescued us, and takes us there. But even deeper than that, Moses has this incredible privilege here of being able to go into the tent and talk to the Lord. And y'all see that conversation he has? It's a frank conversation. Moses is being honest. We're desperate for you. The Lord says, well, you don't look desperate. We are, I promise. We have to have you. Or not. If you do this, they go back and forth. And that seems like, wow, that would be nice to have, right? What the New Testament tells us for, as believers is we have a better tent of meeting than what Moses had. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us ourselves. In other words, you don't have to look outside anywhere to see if there's a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. And what I would probably tell you is if there is some cloud going from the sky down to the ground, you probably need to run, hide, and tuck, and roll or something somewhere. We've got something better that we don't have to peek outside our tent to see if God's presence with us. We have the Spirit of God dwelling in us, and we have a greater than Moses. Hear what Moses says. Moses says in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on that day of the assembly. Y'all remember that? He's talking about this day. Remember when we got there and you wanted to hear from God? You have one greater that is coming. Jesus is the one that's greater than Moses. And while Moses intercedes on behalf of the people so they can get to the promised land and God goes with him, Jesus has interceded on our behalf so that we too can get to heaven. And he goes with us. His spirit's presence is with us throughout this entire journey. And so ultimately we see this absolute desperation. And that desperation is seen even as Jesus preaches to us in John 15. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Y'all need to let those words sink into your very soul. I think sometimes we brush by that and don't consider what that means. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. Jesus is the one that not only saves us, but he also leads us. His presence is with us through the spirit that he sends to us and he gets us safely home. And so the idea that we could get the benefits of heaven apart from the presence of Christ Jesus is utter nonsense. It's utter nonsense. And that's what we're seeing here. It can't happen. There is no promised land without the, without the Lord God with us. 
And what does Moses say at the end? For it shall be known, I found favor, blah. Verse 17, and the Lord says to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do. In other words, I'll be with you. I'll lead you out. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Man, Moses said, please show me your glory. Y'all know I love to quote Spurgeon. Spurgeon says, there's no greater prayer or request of God in all of Scripture than this single request. Moses had seen God's glory. He saw it there when the bush was burning and not consumed. He saw it on Mount Sinai. He saw it back in chapter 17 whenever they complained about not having any water. Y'all remember that? And the glory of God rested on the rock. He saw it there. He saw it with the elders. He saw it on Mount Sinai. He went into the tent of meeting and God came down. Moses has seen God's glory over and over again. And you know what? That wasn't enough. I've got to have more. I've got to have more. Show me your glory again. It's like when you see something that's so good, you want to see it over and over again. You want to watch it again. You want to have it again. It's like when you taste something that's so good, you've got to have that again so much that you crave it. The glory of God is so satisfying and good to us that we long for it. We can't have enough. Moses is saying, I've seen it. I've got to see it again. Show me your glory. Show me your glory. Now, what we'll see next week is the Lord's response to that question and how he does show him his glory. But I would be remiss here again to point out that we as believers, this side of the cross, this side of the advent of Christ Jesus himself, we have something far greater than what Moses will even see on this mountain. In fact, that's exactly what John 1 says. We have seen his glory. And that glory we have seen is Christ Jesus himself. The one greater than Moses, the interceder, the one who intercedes on our behalf so that we can enter into the presence of God. We, any one of us, have something better than Moses has. Because we don't have a little tent we got in our backyard we got to go in to get in God's presence. We can do that right here, right now, right where we are because the presence of God is with us through the Spirit. We have something better there. But not only that, we have something better even than, than what Moses asked for. We have the glory of God on display for us through his son, Jesus Christ. We have that on display and what he did for us. In fact, in John 17, right when Jesus is praying with his disciples, getting ready to go to the cross, the very night he would be betrayed, he's up there in that upper room. They've had the Lord's Supper. He prays this beautiful prayer that John records for us. And how does it start? Father, it's time. Glorify your son so that I will bring you glory. It's time. We have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. As Hebrews says, all the other prophets, they spoke in various ways and in sundry circumstances, but Jesus is the full radiance of the glory of God. And that's what we see. Moses is longing for what we have here. God in his grace communes with Moses. God hears his prayers and answers them. He will bring them home. He will take them safely home.
But what we have is what Moses is longing for ultimately. What we have in Christ Jesus is what he's looking for. God has assigned us with a task. And that task is to follow him. We cannot accomplish that task without his presence and his power. And he has equipped us for it. And you know what's even better? Because when you get to this, we talked this past weekend about the prophet, priest, and king, you know. Just to give y'all a heads up, my Wednesday night crowd, so all those people on Sunday doesn't come on Wednesday night, I give y'all a little bit extra sometimes. <laughs> Just to give you a heads up. Jesus, I said this past Sunday, that those are three separate offices that God uses to guide his people for his direction and his glory, right? Jesus fulfills all three of those offices for us. He's the king, but he's the king who would become a servant so that we can be welcomed into his family as a king, as, as children. He's the priest, but he's a priest who's become the sacrifice himself so that he can offer up the perfect sacrifice to God. He's the prophet, but he's the prophet who is given not just the word, but the final word himself. And he is the word, right? That's what John 1 says. He is the word. He's fulfilled all of those for us. What we have is what Moses is longing for and looking for. And so by all means, if we can ever look at these guys and say, man, they were a bunch of knuckleheads, stiff-necked knuckleheads, we have a greater opportunity to be more stiff-necked than you can ever possibly imagine because we have what they were longing for finally and completely in Christ Jesus the Lord. So may we not, as Paul said, or I say Paul, the author of Hebrews says, do not neglect so great a salvation. We have it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for what you have given us in your son, Christ Jesus. Not only has he saved us, he's taking us, leading us home. May we be faithful to follow and not neglect the great privilege we have in calling upon you anytime, any place for your glory and for your name. God, show us your glory in Christ so that we may long for it, love it, pursue it. Show us your glory, Lord. All for your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much. We'll see y'all this Sunday. Hosea.